Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome in to another brand new episode of Sports Court. And as always, I'd like to thank you for listening, however and wherever you may be listening. iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, anywhere that you may be listening to my voice right now. Appreciate you so much for listening, tuning in to another brand new episode. We have a lot to dive into today on a Wednesday, so don't want to waste too much of your time on the intro. I want to dive right into it. But with that being said, first of all, hopefully you're having a great start to your Wednesday. Looking forward to the back half other week just as much as I am. So let me go ahead and set this up for you. I have opening thoughts coming up momentarily. I'm going to break down game seven of the Eastern Conference final between the Heat and Celtics. We're also going to get into Nick Nurse going up to the Philadelphia 76ers to coach Joel Embiid and whomever else will remain on that roster considering the fact that James Harden may not want to remain in Philly. Bob Myers steps down in Golden State. Going to touch on that a little bit later and Eli Drinkowitz, head coach at Mizzou. I'm going to dive into his comments that he made during the SEC meetings on yesterday down in Destin, Florida. I have my second edition of Unpopular Opinions that made his climactic return to the podcast on Monday's episode. And I have a final verdict at the conclusion of the episode today, one that I guarantee you, you don't want to miss. So with that out of the way, let me go ahead and dive straight into my opening thoughts. So, I rarely like to do this because I don't like calling out networks because the networks do a good job at what they're supposed to do. And that's to bring you entertainment. But this is a very critical time of year, especially when you think about it in terms of tennis. So the French Open is taking place right now over in Paris and Roland Garros, French Open, Roland Garros, whatever you like to call it. And here in the States, the TV partner that broadcast the French Open happens to be NBC. And I'll just go ahead and be honest with you. In the past few years, since I've become more acclimated with the sport of tennis, I've become increasingly disappointed with both NBC and ESPN for their coverage of the particular events that they're supposed to be broadcasting. For an example, a couple of years ago, ESPN was broadcasting the Australian Open. And For lack of a better phrase, they did a very piss poor job of broadcasting the Australian Open. 
some of the key matches that we were supposed to be looking out for, those matches were moved over to ESPN Plus, and some of your more low-key matches, if you want to call them that, were broadcast on ESPN and ESPN2. But ESPN will not get the brunt of my fury in this opening thought segment today. It's going to be NBC, considering the fact that we're in the French Open stage of the tennis calendar. So NBC has been broadcast in the French Open since 1975, and they've permanently been doing so since 1983. And every single year that they broadcast the French Open, I become increasingly frustrated with their lackluster coverage of the first half of the event. Because what NBC likes to do is that they have this spot where they come on from, sometimes it's from 12 to 2 or 11 to 2. And they broadcast some of the matches that took place earlier that morning instead of picking up live coverage of what's happening in that specific time frame that they're airing the event. Now, the only thing that NBC airs live is the men and women's semifinals and the championship for both the men and women. Besides that, if you want to watch live coverage of the French Open, you either have to have a subscription to Peacock or you have to tune into Tennis Channel. Now, that brings up the point that I want to make. Now that we have streaming services in the sports market space, it's become increasingly difficult to really watch some of the events that you've become accustomed to watching on TV because now these organizations and these events have realized that streaming brings in more money than you just watching it free on cable television. So with that being said, I'm very disappointed in NBC and their lackluster coverage of the French Open. And it's been that way for a couple of years. Even before I started doing this podcast, I said to myself, NBC has to do a better job of broadcasting the French Open. See, the thing is, is that they don't even broadcast the French Open from the first day until the conclusion of the event. They start typically on the second day of the tournament and then goes straight through into the championship. And it's not really a thorough job that they're doing. They show mar- they show matches that have already been broadcast on Tennis Channel. And then here they come when the semifinals take place. They want to broadcast everything live. Well, what got us there, we don't even know if you don't keep up with it regularly like I do. You don't know what happened in the week that led up to the semifinals. The only thing you know is that there are eight people left four on the men's side, four on the women's side, and they're competing to see who's going to be the last four remaining for finals championship day or finals weekend, whatever you like to call it. So NBC has to do a better job broadcasting this event. The same way ESPN has to do a better job broadcasting the Australian Open and the U.S. Open. Now, I've been one of those people that has said on occasion that it may be time for ESPN to take back coverage of the French because a couple of years ago, ESPN and NBC entered into a agreement to where ESPN could broadcast some of the matches from the French. And I felt that that was a pretty good agreement because it took a lot of the load off of NBC and even Tennis Channel. I can't let them off the hook either. Tennis Channel they are only going to show the matches that are important. But they'll cut to a match that's taking place on a lesser court where it's coming down to the wire, it's the fifth set, and both players are playing some phenomenal tennis, and you don't even know that that's happening until they cut to it. 
They don't keep you updated. There is no score box in the bottom of the screen that tells you what's taking place on the other courts. Because mainly, when you tune in and watch it live on television, they're only going to show you the action that's taking place on Chachere, and they're only going to show you the action that's taking place on Suzanne Longlin. Those are the only two courts that they're mainly going to focus their attention on. If it's not happening on Chatrier or if it's not happening on Susan Longland, they're not going to show it. And that's pretty sad if you want to be honest. How can we get a very clear snapshot of the event if we don't even know about some of the other things that are taking place on the other courts throughout the course of the event? So NBC has to do a better job. ESPN has to do a better job. Tennis Channel has to do a better job. How can you call yourself a channel devoted to the sport and you're not even doing a good job broadcasting the event? Tell me in what world is that right? Tell me in what world is that feasible enough to broadcast to the world? It's not. And then to add even more insult to injury, you have some of the biggest names in tennis history broadcasting the matches. Martina Navratilova, John McEnroe, Jim Courier, Andy Roddick, you have those guys helping with the broadcast portion of the event. And what is that really doing for the event in itself if we can't see those guys consistently? Because we already know that they have their eyes fixed on certain matches. And when those matches don't turn out in their favor, it's time to move on to something else. Daniil Medvedev was eliminated from the French yesterday. And Daniil Medvedev came into this event after winning in Rome. And next thing you know, he's put out in the first round by a qualifier. Tell me, how is this event working out so far? And then what pisses me off as well, and this is no disrespect to her as a player, but this is just starting to become repetitive to me. Every event that we go into, We always hear this discussion about Coco Golf. Can Coco Golf finally break through? That's the discussion that we have at every single tournament in which she enters. Can she break through? At some point or another, we have to get out of the business of continuously asking ourselves that question. Because if she hasn't broken through by now, then when will she? Now, I feel that coaching could be a very big problem as to what is going on with her because coaching has arguably been the most irrelevant thing in her arsenal since she turned pro. And there's nothing wrong with looking elsewhere for advice, but we have clearly seen from her that her father is in complete control of her regime. And that's very problematic, especially if you're not getting the results that you're supposed to be getting. Now, I know what you may be saying. Coco Golf made it all the way to the final last season at the French Open where she played Iga Schuatic. But tell me what exactly happened during that match. Iga Schuatic held that match from start to finish. She did not allow Coco Golf to have any breathing room at any point. That's exactly what happened. And if I remember correctly, Iga Schuatic won that match in straight sets. So we have to get out of this bubble of always wondering, what can Coco Golf do at this event? See, the way in which she came onto the scene has caused people to continuously ask that question. When she beat Venus at Wimbledon a couple of years ago, that's what really opened a lot of people's eyes to this young woman from America named Coco Golf. 
And since then, it feels like the tennis commentators on Tennis Channel has had this never-ending fascination as to what she can possibly do. There were even some that compared her to being the next Serena or Venus. The difference is, is that at this point in their career, at least Serena and Venus had won Grand Slam titles. At least they had started to solidify themselves as premier figures on the WTA Tour. Coco Golf has not solidified herself on the WTA Tour yet. Because she can't even beat players that are either below her or right there at her skill level. And that's very problematic. Now, if she loses to Igor Swiatek, nobody's going to bat an eye because she is the number one ranked women's player in the world right now. So that's not problematic. If she loses to Jessica Pagula, I think it's pretty universally known at this point that Jessica Pagula is a much better player than Coco Golf, even though Jessica Pagula, she can choke up and clam up in matches of her own. But listen, we have to stop this. And this same excuse that we dish out every single year when she loses an event, she's still young, she still has time to learn. Respectfully, no, she doesn't. Because when you saw Venus and Serena, when you saw Martina Hingis, when you saw Steffi Groff, when you saw Martina Navratilova, if you even want to translate this over to the men's side, when you saw Roger, when you saw Rafa, when you saw Novak, when you saw Andy Murray, when you saw Stefan Etberg, Andre Agassi, Pete Sampras, Michael Chang, John McEnroe, Boris Becker. When you saw all of the greats, how did we know that they were going to become great? Because they won early and they won often. That's how we knew that they were going to separate themselves from the rest of the pack. Coco Golf has not separated herself from the rest of the pack on the WTA side yet. And at her age... With as young as she is and with as bright of a future as she has, it may be time for a coaching change. Because arguably right now, the coaches that she has is not getting the job done. There are a lot of fundamental things within her game that she needs to tweak if she wants to have a long, sustainable career on the WTA Tour. And I said this a couple of months ago. I said, when you think about Coco Golf, she's either going to have the career of Serena or Venus, or she's going to have the career of Sloane Stephens. Now, can anybody truly say that Sloane Stephens has lived up to expectations ever since she won the U.S. Open back in 2017? I'll answer the question for you. She has not. And even when we think that she's about to get ready and break through again, she breaks our hearts. And see, this is what I told you. I told you this last year when it was announced that Serena was about to get ready to retire. I said that women's tennis was going to go through a period of self-identification where they were going to have to look in the mirror and find who they were about to become. Because no longer were you going to have Serena to help carry the sport. And even in the back half of her career, she wasn't even necessarily carrying the sport because she was being defeated by players that were of or not at her level. That was Serena in the back half of her career. When she lost Wimbledon of 2019 to Simona Halep in 59 minutes, we automatically start to assume that maybe Serena is finally starting to realize it may be time to go. And then when she followed that up by losing the U.S. Open in 2019 to Bianca Andreescu, I said to myself at that point, yeah, it may be time. And then to go alongside of that, she had lost the U.S. Open final the year prior to Naomi Osaka. That was the match that put Naomi Osaka on the map for a lot of people. 
Women's tennis right now is in that period of self-identification that I told you to be aware of last year. I'm not trying to say that women's tennis is a bad product to watch, but what I'm saying is that this revolving door of who's going to be at the top to battle Iga Shruatik, at some point you have to have an established group that can rival her for the top spot. There are, right now, honestly, there are only two other ladies that can rival Iga Shruatik, Arena Sabalenka and Elena Rabakina. Those are the only two other female tennis players that can rival Iga Shruatik. The rest of them just come and go. To put this into even more perspective, Kerchikova, she lost the other day. She won the French Open both on the single side and the double side back in, what was it, 2021, 2022, and she hasn't been the same player since. Now, she's dealt with injury and she's dealt with a few other things, but she hasn't been the same player that delivered on both the singles and double side of the French Open just two or three years prior. This is exactly where we're at. Women's tennis is going through that period of self-identification. And if they don't get a grip on what their identity is now, they may never do it again. Because gone are the days of Martina Navratilova, Chrissy Everett, Billie Jean King, Martina Navratilova, Steffi Groff, Serena and Venus, Martina Hingis. Those days are gone. Kim Gleistras, Maria Sharapova, those days are gone. Now we need to see this next generation of female tennis players step up and carry the sport. Just like we need the next generation of male tennis players to step up and carry their side of the sport. Because nobody knows truly how long Novak Djokovic has left to play. Because even he's undecided about how much longer he has to play on the tour. And he even came out and said this the other day when he was asked about Rafa's retirement. He said that when Rafa steps away next year, he feels as though a part of him is going to step away too. That's just how much those two guys meant to each other throughout the course of their career. Because whether or not you want to admit it, Nadal versus Federer wasn't the big match that it used to be. Or that wasn't the big rivalry in tennis that a lot of people try to put it up to be. Because statistically, Nadal and Djokovic faced off more times than Nadal faced off against Federer. That's statistically proven. So yes, women tennis is in that period of self-identification and NBC needs to do a better job covering the French Open. And those were my opening thoughts for today. So let's go ahead and talk about what everybody else has been talking about. Game number seven of the Eastern Conference Finals took place on Monday night, 103 to 84 in favor of the Miami Heat. Now, of course, you've probably heard this put a million different ways. And you've probably heard a lot of different people talk about this game based on what was lacking when you talk about the Boston Celtics and not talking about what was there in terms of the Miami Heat. A lot of things went right in this game for the Heat. First of all, let me just go ahead and say this. I told you one of the things that I was looking out for in that game was the coaching matchup between Joe Mazzulla and Eric Spolstra. And I think it's pretty safe to say that Eric Spolstra outcoached Joe Mazzulla. And I'm going to bring up Joe Mazzulla a little bit later. He's going to take center stage in my unpopular opinion section of the show today. So stay on the lookout for that. The Miami Heat, if there was ever a time to make a 30-30 about a particular team or a particular event, I think the Miami Heat are due for a 30 for 30. 
because this playoff run that they've been on has been nothing short of spectacular. A bunch of undrafted, unproven guys in a lot of people's eyes stepped together collectively and are now about to get ready and play for an NBA title. Eric Spolstra, let's just think about where he was a couple of years ago. Before LeBron James left Miami to go back to Cleveland, there was this power struggle down in South Beach. LeBron wanted Eric Spolstra to be fired, but Pat Riley stepped in and said, I'm not firing Eric Spolstra. We've just won back-to-back NBA titles, and I'm not about to fire the guy that helped lead us to that job. So LeBron basically departs to go back to Cleveland, and the rest is history. Spolstra stayed in his post as head coach of the Heat, and LeBron went on to do whatever LeBron wanted to do. Now, let's just say for the sake of argument, if Pat Riley would have listened to LeBron James and would have fired Eric Spolstra, do we believe that the Miami Heat would still be a fixture in the Eastern Conference like they happen to be right now? It's hard to tell. Because the Miami Heat, they've had a sustainable run at excellence ever since Pat Riley took that job when he left the Miami, when he left the New York Knicks. They've been a force to be reckoned with in the Eastern Conference ever since that day. And now here they are again with an opportunity to play for another title. Say what you want to say about Spolstra. Say what you want to say about the collection of talent that the Miami Heat have. But they're here. And Caleb Martin? Caleb Martin showed up to play. Not just in Game 7, but during the entirety of this postseason run that they've been on. Caleb Martin can guarantee himself that he's going to be going to the bank with a very big bag coming up here soon. Because he's played well enough, good enough, great enough to get that bag. Caleb Martin is going to get paid. And I feel that the Miami Heat will have no problem paying him what he's worth, thanks in large part to what he's done throughout the course of the season and what he's done throughout the course of the playoffs. He's earned it. Now let's talk about somebody else who a lot of people have been skeptical about paying. And I'm talking about Jalen Brown. Jalen Brown in Game 7 was basically a no-show. I think we can all universally agree upon that. Nothing he did in Game 7 in a lot of people's eyes would warrant him to receive the Supermax that he can receive at the end of the year. Well, it is the end of the year for them now. Let me just say this, because it feels like a lot of people are putting words in Jalen Brown's mouth. Jalen Brown did not play a good game. 19 points on 8 of 23 shooting, and by the way, he had 8 turnovers. So the same amount of shots that he made was also the same amount of turnovers that he had in the game. Let me say this, because if you've been listening to this pod up to this point, you know how I feel about Jalen Brown. I've even said that if you give me an opportunity to start a team, I would rather have Jalen Brown over Jason Tatum. Because at least we know what Jason Tatum's game happens to be. There are still areas in which Jalen Brown can improve on where he still has an opportunity to become a great player. Not to say that he isn't one right now. But the problem that I'm having with a lot of people who've been talking about this series is that they want to put all of the blame about Game 7 on Jalen Brown. When the Celtics lost Game 1 and 2 at home in the Garden, nobody wanted to talk about how bad Jason Tatum played in both of those games. Jason Tatum in Games 1 and 2 was a turnover machine. But nobody wants to talk about that. Because people need Jason Tatum to step up and be the next face of the NBA. Nobody gives a damn about Jalen Brown and what he wants and what he did. 
Because when Jason Tatum was doing any and everything else on the floor in games one and two, Jalen Brown had to step up for that team. And now that he didn't step up in game seven, we're questioning whether or not he deserves a Supermax deal. And some of the same ones who are questioning that now had no problem giving him the Supermax deal when he was playing his butt off in the regular season. So that narrative needs to be stopped and needs to be stopped immediately. But here's the thing. Why would Jalen Brown even want a Supermax deal or a max deal from the Celtics? And every single year, there's somebody out there that could be of interest in a trade for the Boston Celtics. Jalen Brown's name is always looped into that conversation because they have no need or no desire to want to move Jason Tatum. Anytime trade talks come up involving the Boston Celtics, the Celtics will always tell the other team that Jalen, that Jason Tatum rather is off limits. He's not going anywhere. He's our future. But you guys have no care about putting Jalen Brown out there in that fire and let him in in and let him ingest that smoke. You guys have no problem with that. But then when you have a game seven in your building and seconds into the game, Jason Tatum rolls his ankle on Gabe Vincent while going up for a layup, then you need Jalen Brown to step up in the game. After all the disloyalty that you've given to him, you want him to be loyal to you in that moment. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Tell me, how does that feel? Tell me, how does that work? You guys have basically given Jalen Brown the middle finger on more than one occasion. And yet you want him to forget all about that and step up in the absence of a healthy Jason Tatum in a critical game seven. Tell me, how does that work? Does that even work at all? Now, let me just go ahead and say this because nobody else seems to want to say it. Should this duo be broken up at this point? Why keep it together? If we always have to ask that question every time the Celtics have a bad game or have a bad series, then we may as well just go ahead and break these guys up and see what they can do separately. But I guarantee you this, just because you break this duo up, that doesn't necessarily mean that the following season the Celtics are going to win the title. Because the same problems that exist now that they're still together is going to be the same problems that could potentially get exposed even worse if you break these two up. Nobody on the floor for the Boston Celtics in Game 7 acted as though that was a true Game 7. You want to know why? Because the Celtics exhausted all of their energy and all of that momentum in trying to win Game 6 to keep their season alive to force said Game 7 that we witnessed on Monday night. Because honestly, Game 6 was Game 7. Game 7 felt like a scrimmage. 
it felt like the Heat used that game basically to get themselves ready to go face the Nugs in the NBA Finals tomorrow night. That's what Game 7 felt like. And see, this whole thing about the Boston Celtics being this bad team, nobody talked about how bad they were when they were running rough shot during the regular season. The only time that we criticized the Celtics during the regular season is when they lost those three games to Orlando and when they lost, weirdly, one night to the Houston Rockets. When the Houston Rockets blew them off the floor. That's the only real times that we've ever criticized the Boston Celtics during the course of the regular season. When they came back against Philly, nobody talked about them breaking this team up. When they rallied and finally eliminated Atlanta, nobody talked about breaking this team up. But only when they get to the Eastern Conference Final and lose to the Miami Heat, now are we finally starting to talk about breaking this team up. Jalen Brown, if you get rid of him, that may not solve all of your problems. It may fix them in the short term, but it won't fix them completely in the long term. But if this is what you want to do, if you're Brad Stevens and you're upstairs, and if this is what you and the ownership group want to do, then go ahead and have at it. Because preferably, to be honest with you, I'm sick of the Jalen Brown slander anyway. Listen, I know that he doesn't have the best handles in the world, but there are a lot of NBA players who don't have great handles. Everybody can't have Kyrie Irving handles. And yet, every time, every time the Celtics have a bad game, Everybody else on the team gets a pass. Everybody else on the team gets blamed, except for Jason Tatum. Now listen, I like Jason Tatum. Been following Jason Tatum ever since he was at Duke. But I will not let that stop me from telling you the truth. Because that's the truth. If we're going to blame Jalen Brown for his in-up play in Game 7, then we also need to blame Jason Tatum for his in-up play in Game 7 too. I don't give a damn about the fact that he rolled his ankle seconds into the game. Because if you're that guy, and if you're the leader of that team, you're supposed to be able to step up even regardless of what you may be going through. Michael Jordan played with the flu. Isaiah Thomas rolled his ankle. What was it, 1988 in the finals against the Lakers? And look at what he did. So stop with this. We're going to give Jason Tatum a pass because he rolled his ankle. That's bullshit. He should have still been able to step up if he's that guy. Remember what he said after that Philly series? He stepped up to that microphone and he said, humbly, I'm one of the best players in the world. If you're that guy, you would have stepped up and delivered for your team. That's it. I'm not going to be like these other guys you see on TV giving that man a pass because he doesn't deserve one. Because if we're not going to give the Celtics a pass as a team, then he shouldn't get one individually because he doesn't deserve it. Great players step up regardless of what's nagging them. That's it. And you know, I'll throw it to you this way. After the Lakers were eliminated by the Nugs in the Western Conference Final, we found out that LeBron played through a nagging foot injury. And LeBron in game four of that series put up 40 points. So you trying to tell me that the best Jason Tatum could do for this team in game seven, he played 41 minutes, he scored 14 points on five of 13 shooting, and he was one of four from three. Great players doesn't let injury stop them from what they need to accomplish. If that ankle was bothering him that bad, sub yourself out of the game for a while, go in the locker room, get it taped, and come back out and finish the job. That's what you do if you're that guy. See, if he wouldn't have made the comments about humbly I'm one of the best players in the world right now, maybe I could give him a pass. 
but it wouldn't be a full pass. It wouldn't be a hall pass for you to do what? Goof around in the hallway when we're supposed to be taking a test? Because that's exactly what it feels like the sports media is doing for Jason Tatum. They, I feel as though they're giving him a pass to just go skip around in the hallway while the rest of the team has to take the test. Pathetic. Just flat out pathetic. And then as a team, 9 of 42 from 3. That's the equivalent of 21%. And then when you look at the Heat shooting the three ball, they were 50%, 14 to 28. Listen, I understand the three ball, and we're also going to talk about the three ball in the final verdict coming up too. I understand that you sometimes have to shoot the three ball to get back into a game. But when that becomes your forte, and when that becomes the only thing that you seem to want to do throughout the course of a game, that becomes very problematic. Because then... You're not really setting up a mid-range game. You're not really driving to the basket. The only thing you're doing is you're living and dying off the three ball. And the Celtics in game seven died based on the three ball. The only person for the Boston Celtics that treated that game like a game seven and really gave it his all was Derek White. Everybody else on the team basically just treated the game like, hey, you know, we got it this far. What else do you want from us? I want you to win the damn thing. Because nobody truly... Honestly, now, nobody truly predicted that the Miami Heat were going on this dominant of a run in the postseason. Nobody. And if you did, you're either a Heat fan or you're just somebody that's late for the party. But nobody definitively outside of that Miami market could have saw this coming. Because I didn't. Just think about where the Heat were throughout the course of the regular season. The Heat were a very middling team during the regular season. And then all of a sudden, they rounded into their own took out Milwaukee, and now here they are about to represent the Eastern Conference in the NBA Finals. And for all of you out there that wanted to criticize Udonis Haslam saying that the only thing he does is sit on the bench and claps and high fives and he doesn't do anything, Udonis Haslam and his veteran presence in that locker room is what got those guys over the time of adversity. i tell you that. Eric Spolstra. Just think about what could have happened if Pat Riley listened to LeBron James. Spolstra would have been fired and Spolstra potentially would have been coaching somewhere else. And now we have to put Spolstra in the conversation as one of the best coaches in the NBA, not just right now, but all time. Because Spolstra rose through the coaching ranks in the Miami Heat organization. So he's been around for the ups, the downs, the good, the bad, the indifferent. And now here we are. He continuously does this. Getting this team over the hump when it doesn't even seem like they're they're supposed to get over the hump. And now they're about to get ready and play for another title. Now, some may say that if Spolstra and the Heat win this title, that's going to solidify his legacy. This postseason run in itself, whether they win or lose, has already solidified Spo as one of the best coaches all time. And then when you have one of the greatest coaches in NBA history upstairs as an exec in Pat Riley, Pat Riley has an eye for talent. And those guys, the Max Struces, the Gabe Vincents, the Caleb Martin, those guys were overlooked by other teams. And now look at what they're doing for the Heat. And then when you think about what the Heat were able to do in this game seven, They did this without Tyler Hero, and they did this without Victor Oladipo. Could you imagine what this game would have looked like if those two guys were out there on that floor? The score would have been more lopsided than what it already was. But now the Heat, through all of this, 
are about to get ready and play for the NBA title. They are four games away from potentially hoisting the Larry O'Brien trophy. And just think about Florida sports right now. There's a lot of buzz going on right now about the Miami Dolphins. We're going to talk about them a little bit later. The Florida Panthers making it to the Stanley Cup final against the Vegas Golden Knights. The Miami Heat are about to get in and play in the NBA Finals. And for the past few seasons, the Tampa Bay Lightning have been one of the more dominant forces in the National Hockey League. And the Tampa Bay Buccaneers just a few seasons ago with TB12 as their quarterback won the Super Bowl. And they rose up from obscurity to now being one of the premier teams in the NFL. Well, I don't know about now, but they were when Tom Brady was the quarterback. So right now is a very great time to be a Florida sports fan because of all of the different things that they've been able to do collectively. And I also got another stat for you. This is the first time in Boston sports history where both the hockey team, the Boston Bruins, and the basketball team, the Boston Celtics, have lost to an eight seed. The Florida Panthers defeated the Bruins in seven games as an eight seed. The Miami Heat defeated the Celtics in seven games as an eight seed. Now, if you're a Boston sports fan, I will say this to give you a little bit of comfort. At least the Celtics made it further than the Bruins. Because when you think about the Bruins, they had just had a historically great regular season. And everybody had already started to pencil them in as the team that was going to represent the Eastern Conference in the Stanley Cup final. And next thing you know, the Florida Panthers jump out to a great, great lead. And next thing you know, the Bruins couldn't finish the job off at home in Game 7. And now the Panthers are representing the Eastern Conference in the Stanley Cup final. Great game. Great game. And I even told you on Monday... I said, I'm hoping for a game seven that lives up to the hype. I'm hoping for a game seven that comes down to the wire. Both teams keep it close. Both teams play physical. And it may be what we witnessed in game six at the end when Derek White tipped that ball in and broke the heart of the Miami Heat fans and the Miami Heat players. We witnessed none of that on Monday night. That game was a complete blowout from start to finish. Now the, Heat, now the Celtics, rather, have a lot of questions that they have to ask and answer in the offseason. And one of the biggest ones happens to center around Jalen Brown. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. If I'm Jalen Brown... If you've listened to his interviews and if you've listened to his press conferences as of late, Jalen Brown isn't as committed to the Boston Celtics as he used to be. Because Jalen Brown understands what this is, and I feel that a lot of other players should understand this too. The NBA, the NFL, Major League Baseball, 
Major League Soccer, the National Hockey League, all of these different leagues are a business. So you shouldn't get comfortable where you're at because you never know when you could be shipped away somewhere else. And Jalen Brown realizes that, hey, it's been a great run here. If they don't want to re-sign me, I'll take my talents elsewhere. If they do want to re-sign me, then we can run this thing back. But Jalen Brown has employed the right attitude throughout all of this. I'm not going to get comfortable here. I'm not going to get complacent playing for the Boston Celtics because I know that if they can go out and find something better than me and cheaper, they're going to go out after that option. But whatever happens to Jalen Brown, whatever happens to Jason Tatum, I feel as though we've potentially seen those two guys play in a Boston Celtics uniform for the last time together as teammates. There's just been too much damage done to the proverbial bridge between the Celtics front office and Jalen Brown to where that bridge may be beyond repair. And trust me, I know of a few bridges in my hometown that are beyond repair, and yet the city still decides to patch it up every now and then. I don't believe that the Celtics can patch this bridge up. They can try, but there's not enough cement blocks out there to really put that bridge back together all the way. Because you can't piss off one of your star players and then expect him to show up in a game seven and give you his all. Because you guys haven't given him your all when it comes to loyalty. And now you want him to give you his all. No. It's sad to see those two guys, if this is the end of their partnership in Boston, it's sad to have seen it break down the way in which it did. But one thing I've always said about great teams and I've always said about dynasties is that majority of the time, they never truly end as pretty as people want you to think that they do. And that was game seven in a nutshell. All right, let's shift to the NFL. So last season, the AFC championship game gave us the Cincinnati Bengals against the Kansas City Chiefs. The Cincinnati Bengals shot themselves in the foot when one of their defensive players, whose name escapes me to this day, decided to push Patrick Mahomes out of bounds, drew the unnecessary roughness penalty, and by virtue gave Kansas City an opportunity to allow Harrison Butker to kick what became the game-winning field goal and which ultimately sent the Kansas City Chiefs back to the Super Bowl to face off against Jalen Hurts and the Philadelphia Eagles. Now, before all of that happened, there was a play during the game that a lot of people, at least in Cincinnati, felt changed the outcome of the entire game. And I'm talking about Tyler Boyd's injury during the early stages of the game. So the other day, Tyler Boyd was speaking to the media for the first time since they lost the AFC Championship game to the Kansas City Chiefs. And basically what he told reporters was that even if he was 80% healthy, his presence on the field would have allowed the Cincinnati Bengals to eventually win that game. And this is the quote that he gave to the media. And I quote, still to this day, I feel like if I would have played the whole game, I was the key factor. We would have won the game in the quote. Now, early on in this game, after making a 24 yard catch, Tyler Boyd's left leg was caught underneath Justin Reed as Justin Reed tried to make the tackle. And after that, Tyler Boyd got up, couldn't put any weight on that leg, and immediately went to the sideline. And from there, you could kind of see, in a way, Cincinnati's offensive game plan deteriorate. 
Because one of the things that Kansas City had done so well up to that point was to double team Jamar Chase and T. Higgins. Now, if you put a single man on Tyler Boyd, then that gives you a lot of options that you can use with him. And when he exited that game, it caused Zach Taylor, who's their head coach and their offensive play caller, to make some critical decisions that he wouldn't have had to have made if Tyler Boyd would have stayed in that game. Now, the reason why I bring this up is because I want to say this. I get where Tyler Boyd is coming from. We always sit up at times and wonder what if an outcome of a situation would have been different if I was allowed to do it my way. But also at the same time, if you're Tyler Boyd and if you are a teammate of Tyler Boyd, this comment should strike you as counterproductive. And I say that to say this. When you think about the Bengals and you think about the way that they're currently constructed as a team, they have a golden opportunity not just to beat Kansas City in the AFC, but they also have a golden opportunity to get back to a Super Bowl. If I'm Zach Taylor, if I'm Joe Burrow, and if I'm some of the other key teammates on this team, I would be trying to tell Tyler Boyd, listen, I understand what you're saying. I understand that you felt that your injury derailed what we were trying to do in that game. But also, it's time to look ahead instead of looking backwards. Because the only thing we're doing by looking backwards is it's causing us to lose sight of what's in the present. And I'll tell you this, a lot of times when you keep looking back, you're hindering what could potentially be in front of you because you haven't taken your mind off of what happened back there. You haven't diverted your attention away from the past to bring it to the present. And then by looking into the present, you can potentially see the future. So I get where he's coming from because he felt as though, listen, if I would have stayed out there and if they would have continued to double team T Higgins and Jamar Chase, I potentially could have went off and had a very dominant performance in the playoff game. Potentially Tyler Boyd could have had 10 catches for hundred yards and potentially one or two touchdowns. But these type of things happen. The unfortunate thing about injuries in sports is that you never truly know when it's going to happen because injuries, they can sneak up on you at any given time. They can sneak up on you when you least expect it. But if I'm Tyler Boyd, I understand where his comments are coming from. But hey, the season's right around the corner. You guys have an opportunity to play the Kansas City Chiefs in the regular season. And for you guys, it may lead to a rematch in the playoffs if you guys were to see each other. But the main thing that you have to prioritize if you're the Cincinnati Bengals is the health of Joe Burrow and keeping your guys healthy. If you can do that, and win the games that you're supposed to win and even knock off some teams you're not supposed to, the sky's the limit for the Bengals. And this isn't unfamiliar territory for them because they have a 3-1 and one record against Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs now that Joe Burrow has stepped in at quarterback. So we may be seeing the new version of what we used to witness back in the day between the Patriots and Colts. Now it just may be the Chiefs and Bengals becoming the new preeminent rivalry in the AFC and the NFL as a whole. All right, let me get back to the NBA. I told you about Nick Nurse. Nick Nurse has agreed to become the next head coach of the Philadelphia 76ers, according to Adrian Wojnarowski of ESPN. So if you've been with me for a while, listening to the pod, first of all, I appreciate it. Second of all, I've already told you my thoughts about the process. 
I feel as though this process has taken longer than it should have. And I feel as though it still hasn't reached full bloom just yet. The problem is when you take a look at the Philadelphia 76ers, every year we have high expectations for what they can do. And every year they always underachieve. They underachieved under Brett Brown. They underachieved under Doc Rivers. And there's going to be a big question mark as to what they can do now that Nick Nurse has stepped in to become their head coach. Let me tell you what I saw yesterday. There was a chat going on about Nick Nurse taking his job. And somebody in the chat said something that went along the lines of, the only reason why Nick Nurse won that championship in 2019 in Toronto was because Kawhi Leonard played arguably one of the most brilliant playoff performances in the history of the NBA. And I said, while that can be true, Nick Nurse was still the head coach that oversaw Kawhi Leonard's brilliant playoff performances. So that's my take on that. What can Nick Nurse do for this team? Arguably, he's going to be coaching the reigning MVP in Joel Embiid. There's still discussions internally about what's going to happen with James Harden. All indications point to James Harden may be exiting Philly to go back to Houston or somewhere else. And Nick Nurse has an opportunity to continue the development process as it pertains to Tyrese Maxey, who I believe if given the proper minutes and if put into the starting rotation, Tyrese Maxey can blossom right in front of your eyes. Now, according to Shams of The Athletic, Nick Nurse turned down the opportunity to coach the Phoenix Suns and the Milwaukee Bucks. Now, that led to the question, why would Nick Nurse turn down both of those teams just to go coach the Sixers? The reason why I feel that Nurse turned down the Suns' job is because you have an aging Kevin Durant and you have an aging Chris Paul. The only person on that team in that starting bubble or in that starting orbit that's still kind of young would be Devin Booker. And what was one of the big problems that we saw unfold during the course of the Suns playoffs run against the Nugs? The Suns did not have a bench and that became very problematic for them down the stretch. When you needed to give KD, D book, And Chris Paul, before he got injured, when you needed to give those guys a breather, you really couldn't get quality productivity from your bench players. And then when you look at the reason why Nurse potentially turned down the Bucs job, Giannis is still there. Giannis, every single year Giannis steps out there on the court, he has the potential chance to take the MVP award. But also there are still questions concerning Chris Middleton and Brooke Lopez, not just contractual questions, but you also have to deal with the fact that those two guys are aging as well. So there are so many questions that you can loop into the Milwaukee Bucks and you can come out and see why Nick Nurse decided to turn that down. The 76ers are a young team. They have the reigning MVP and the Eastern Conference is wide open. The Heat are always going to present problems. The Bucs are going to be great as long as Giannis is great. There's still going to be some questions and some lingering decisions that the Celtics are going to have to make. And the Brooklyn Nets, if they run it back with their guys next season, now there's still some uncertainty surrounding Cam Johnson and whether or not they re-sign him. But if the Nets can be more of what they were last season and let this develop for a full season, 
The Eastern Conference is there for the taking if you're the Philadelphia 76ers. But the problem will be, we've witnessed this process go on for a very long time. Can Nick Nurse finally bring this train to the station? Can he finally land this airplane at the right airport? Can he finally park in the right driveway instead of the neighbor's driveway? And if Nick Nurse can do those things, and if he can deliver the city of Philadelphia a championship for the first time since the days of Dr. J, then they'll be on to something. It was time. I even said it. After it was announced that Doc Rivers had been fired after they blew that 3-2 lead to Boston, I came on this podcast and I told you that it's time for a fresh start for both Doc Rivers and for the Sixers. Because the Sixers believe that they have all the pieces in place to contend in the Eastern Conference, they just need a new voice in the locker room to inspire those guys. And Doc, obviously, I said it, and I'll reiterate it to you today. I said that Doc Rivers reminds me of a family member that overstays his or her welcome at the cookout. They're waiting on everybody else to leave to see what kind of food is left so they can take to-go plates out in the aluminum foil and you won't see them again until the 4th of July. Said that since we just had Memorial Day. You won't see them again until the 4th of July. Doc Rivers overstayed his welcome in Philly. You can't overstay your welcome if you don't bring any food to the party. And if you're Doc Rivers, you can't overstay your welcome if you're not getting these guys past the second round every single year. And to add this little nugget towards the end of the topic, Nick Nurse and Daryl Morey, the GM and president of Basketball Ops, they have a good working relationship going back to their days together in Houston when Daryl Morey was down there and Nick Nurse was the head coach of the Rockets G League affiliates the Rio Grande Valley Vipers from 2011 to 2013. That was his job before he took over as a Raptors assistant back in 2013. So that also adds a little bit more intrigue into why Nick Nurse decided to take that job over the job of the Suns and Bucks. And the Bucks hired away one of Nurse's former assistants, Adrian Griffin, to oversee that team. We talked about that on Monday. So it's going to be interesting to see what Nick Nurse can do with Joel Embiid and the rest of the Sixers. Maybe they'll go on, maybe they'll go on and have a very significant run next season. They're going to have to. Because anything short of the second round of the playoffs would be an immediate disaster. It would be an immediate disappointment. Because say what you want to say about Doc. I said the same thing about whoever takes over that Bucks job and whoever takes over that Suns job. If Adrian Griffin cannot get the Milwaukee Bucks back to the NBA Finals, firing Mike Budenholzer will look like a mistake. If the next guy that takes over for the Phoenix Suns does not get those guys to the NBA Finals, firing Monty Williams would be a mistake. And if Nick Nurse cannot get the Sixers over into the conference final or even into the second round of the playoffs, then there's going to be some transgressions about letting Doc Rivers go. But it's basketball, it's business, and at the end of the day, the business of basketball has to continue moving. And that's how it is in Philly, and that's also how it's going to be in Golden State moving forward because Bob Myers has decided to step down as GM and president of basketball operations. This news was reported on yesterday. And Bob Myers told Woj, quote, it's just time. Now let me go ahead and say this. When Bob Myers first stepped into this role, as GM in 2012 
there were a lot of different questions about the Golden State Warriors. Where's this going? Can this guy named Steph Curry finally develop into his own? Will this team be a threat in the Western Conference or will they just exist in the Western Conference? And then next thing you know, from 2015 to 2022, the Warriors went on to win four NBA championships. Steve Kerr solidified himself as a Hall of Fame basketball coach. Steph Curry submitted his legacy as a Hall of Fame player. Klay Thompson became one of the best sidekicks in the history of the NBA. And Draymond Green is going to go into the Hall of Fame based on what he's done defensively. So when you look at what Bob Myers has been able to do during his tenure as GM of the Golden State Warriors, I think it's possible to say that he may be one of the best executives to ever come into this league because of those things that he's been able to do, because of the moves that he made, going out trading for Andre Iguodala, signing Kevin Durant, hiring Steve Kerr, being able to negotiate big lucrative contract extensions for Steph Curry and Klay Thompson. Those were things that he were able to do under his watch. And at some point or another, burnout happens. It happens to all of us. It happens to the best of us. There's going to get a period in time where you just look around and you say to yourself, man, I'm burnt out. I don't know how much longer I can do this without feeling like I'm about to go crazy. Now for Bob Myers, fortunately and financially, he can step down and take some time off to be with his family, which was one of the deciding factors in why he decided not to return to the Golden State Warriors because of his family. He has young kids and he wants to spend time with them. Sort of like Kyle Dubas in Toronto, except, you know, Shanahan stepped in and said when he made that press conference, we knew that we could not bring him back. Joe Lakeup and the ownership group out in Golden State did not come to the microphone and say such things. But sometimes we get to that place where we just burn out and it's fine, you know, especially with how big of a conversation mental health has taken in the everyday landscape of life. Burnout leads to a lot of different things, depression, thoughts of suicide at times, all those different things. And Bob Myers just said, you know, we've built something great here, but at the same time, it has taken a toll on not just myself, but it's taken a toll on me trying to be there for my family. And that's exactly what happened here. Now, whoever is hired to replace Bob Myers, they're going to have big shoes to fill because they're going to have to ask and answer a lot of questions that have been left. What's going to happen when you think about the dynamic between Jordan Poole and Draymond Green? Are you going to be able to let Jordan Poole go somewhere else by trading him? Is somebody going to be willing to take on that contract? Draymond Green, what's going to happen there? Although Steve Kerr says all signs point to Draymond coming back next season, we'll wait and see how that turns out. Steph Clay, all those guys are getting older. Kaminga, can he step into his own? Can those young guys really round into form so that you can easily make the transition from the older guys into the young guys when Steph Clay and Draymond finally do decide to walk away from the game. So the next GM has a lot of questions that he has to answer. And then yesterday, Bob Myers held a press conference and basically said he doesn't know what's going to be his future plans. But I'll tell you this, when he finally does decide to step back into this arena called overseeing day-to-day operations. Do you realize the bidding war that's going to take place for Bob Myers? Every team 
that really wants to become a better team is going to be trying to go out and lure Bob Myers to come into their fold. Because that's just how great of an executive he's been out there in Golden State. And then to think about it, he turned down a contract extension, which would have made him one of the highest paid execs in the league. It goes to show you that at the end of the day, it wasn't about the money. The toll that running one of the most successful dynasties in the history of sports, the toll that that has taken is devastating. It's catastrophic at times. Because you don't know if you can really still deal with the ups and downs. That's that's one of the things that I've always said about being a professional athlete or just being an athlete in general. Can you deal with the tipsy turbies types of things that goes on? Can you deal with the ups and downs of your career? Some people can, some people can't. And Bob Myers is gone. You know, it wasn't about the money as some people tried to make it out to be early on in the process. Just wanted to go and spend time with his family. And this is what he said in the presser that he gave yesterday. And I quote, this team is in great shape. Joe is not going anywhere. You've got a fantastic coach. You've got arguably one of the best players to ever play. One of the best people to ever play in Steph Curry. So the future is unbelievably bright. It is unbelievably bright. If you bring in the right guy to continue the trend. But if you bring in somebody that immediately starts to turn this team into a shell of what it used to be, then you're in trouble. So let's see, can the Golden State Warriors capitalize off the success of their dynasty now that we're removing ourselves further and further away from the golden years of that dynasty into the back half of the careers of Steph, Clay, and Draymond? Now, there's somebody else that isn't in the back half of his career, but considering the fact that he's been injured for the majority of it, it makes you wonder. And I'm talking about Tua Tagovailoa. So Tyreek Hill was talking to Aaron Wilson of KPRC2 Sports earlier this week and basically talked about how excited he is to go out there on the field this season with the plethora of talent that they happen to have both offensively and defensively. But I want to stick to what he said about the offense. And let me tell you, or let me read to you rather, what Tyreek Hill had to say about Tua for this upcoming season. And I quote, Obviously, we got one of the most accurate quarterbacks in the NFL, and I'm sticking to my stance on that. So having Tua at quarterback and having the offensive guru we have in our head coach is wonderful. Having those weapons at his disposal, he's going to go crazy. He can have me and Waddle on one side, Devon and Raheem on another side. The sky is the limit for this offense. End of quote. He's not wrong. He's not wrong. Tua, when healthy, is one of the most accurate quarterbacks in the NFL. Notice what I said, when healthy. That's the biggest question mark that surrounds the career of Tua Tagovailoa. Can he stay healthy? Nobody can doubt his ability because we saw it on full display when he was at Tuscaloosa, when he was at the University of Alabama playing under Nick Saban. Tua, during that time, Arguably, if it wasn't for what transpired in that November day in 2019 when LSU came to town, that was supposed to have been the year that Tua Tagovailoa should have won the Heisman Trophy. But there was some guy that came along that transferred from Ohio State 
that had to wait his turn goes by the name of Joe Burrow. Don't know if you heard of him came in there and that game gave him his Heisman moment. And then eventually he did go on to win the Heisman trophy. But listen, nobody is doubting Tua's ability to play the game. Nobody. The only problem that you really truly have with Tua is his inability to stay healthy. Last season suffered two concussions and only played in 13 games. And then in the 13 games that he did play, he had an eight and five record. He threw for over 3,500 yards. He had 25 touchdowns to eight interceptions. Not a bad stat line. But see, here's the problem though. And it's not really a problem for Tua. It's a problem when you look at the Dolphins as a whole. You've made all of these changes, changes that a lot of people felt that you needed to make. But when you look around the AFC, there is no margin for error. Just look at your own division for starters, the AFC East. You have the Bills, who a lot of people believe can go and win this division for a fourth time. Then you have the Jets, who went out and got Aaron Rodgers, who a lot of people felt like was the missing piece to making sure that the Jets can be a viable playoff contending team and potentially make it to the Super Bowl. The Patriots at this point are just the Patriots. I'll just be honest with you. There's no need to sugarcoat what's going on in Foxborough, Massachusetts right now. The Patriots just happen to be the Patriots. Nothing good is truly happening up there except for the fact that they got rid of Judge and Patricia and brought in Bill O'Brien. Other than that, it's just a normal day in the neighborhood when you're in Bill Belichick's house. That's it. Then, when you look around the AFC as a whole, Kansas City isn't going anywhere. The Chargers aren't going anywhere. The Browns, whether or not you want to believe Deshaun Watson is the quarterback for the future, they're not going anywhere. And by the way, I think D-Hop should sign with Cleveland. Even Deshaun Watson vouched for him to come up there. That would be a great fit. They already have rapport with each other from their days in Houston. So it wouldn't be hard for for DeAndre Hopkins to acclimate himself with Deshaun Watson in that offense think he should make that happen. He signed with Clutch Sports. So now he has an agent, the Cleveland Browns, he'd get on the phone. Can you imagine what the Browns would look like with DeAndre Hopkins on one side, Amari Cooper on the other side, and then just to add a little bit more speed to the equation, you got Anthony Schwartz. Then you already have David Njoku at tight end, and you have one of the best running backs in the NFL in Nick Chubb. And then you have a capable starting quarterback in Deshaun Watson to go along with what you have defensively. The Browns would be a playoff team with that alone. So that's something that D-Hop should potentially look at. Baltimore. Baltimore isn't going anywhere, especially since you have a rejuvenated Lamar Jackson who's finally happy to have gotten his money. So you know he's going to ball out. And basically and virtually he has no choice but to ball out because now he has his money so there's no excuses anymore. What I'm trying to say is that The AFC is so loaded that Miami at times can get lost in the shuffle. They have the most electrifying wide receiver duo in the NFL right now. A lot of people want to say that it's A.J. Brown and Devontae Smith. No. The most electrifying duo in the NFL at the wide receiver position is Jalen Waddell and Tyreek Hill. Because what those guys can do with their size and speed trumps anything that Devontae Smith and A.J. Brown can do. I'll just go ahead and be honest. If Jalen Hurts was the quarterback in Miami with those two guys as his wide receivers, tell me what they could not do. But two is the quarterback, and we'll wait to see what happens. 
But if you take a look around the AFC, and if you look at the Dolphins' schedule, say what you want to say about the Dolphins. Say what you want to say about Mike McDaniel. But they should be a team that should shake up a lot of what we think and consider to be the norm in that conference. Now, a lot of people will look at Tyreek Hill's comments, and I wanted to bring this up too. A lot of people will look at Tyreek Hill's comments and say, here he is again taking another shot at Patrick Mahomes. That is one of the most fascinating games on this schedule. When the Chiefs and the Dolphins play against each other overseas this upcoming season. Me personally, I would have wished this game would have been taking place at Arrowhead, but we can't always get what we want. I cannot wait to see which quarterback has the best day at the office. Will it be Patrick Mahomes or will it be Tua? And finally, we can put to bed this notion about who's better. Now, I'm not trying to say career-wise that that game, if Tua has a good game, would make him better than Patrick Mahomes. But in the right now, in the present, we automatically know Patrick Mahomes is the best quarterback in the NFL. Nobody's doubting that. But if Tua and the Dolphins go over there and pull off the upset because you know that they will not be the favorite in that game, the Chiefs will be the favorite in that game regardless. And if the Dolphins go over there and pull off the upset and Tua has a great game, then what is going to be the topic of conversation following that? The Dolphins have everything at their control right now. They have a great offense. They went up and shored some positions on the defense, most notably bringing in Jalen Ramsey to go alongside Xavier Howard. So basically, the Dolphins, if you haven't been keeping up with them, they are a team right now that can make some noise in the playoffs and make a deep postseason run. But once again, and to bring this point home before we move on, it all hinges on the health of their quarterback. If Tua can stay healthy, and if Jalen Wilder and Tyreek Hill can both go over 1,000 yards, and Raheem Mostert, along with Devon A-Chain, who they drafted out of A&M, if those guys can run the football solidly, and that defense can do their job, the rest of the AFC needs to be on standby, needs to be on alert, because the Dolphins are coming. Now, most of the college football world right now is coming after Eli Drinkwitz, head coach at Mizzou. I told you that we were going to talk about this when I broke this show down for you at the top. And arguably, out of everything that we've talked about today, this is the one thing that I could not wait for. And we finally arrived. So Eli Drinkwitz made some headlines yesterday after he spoke to reporters at the SEC meetings down in Destin, Florida. And what Eli Drinkwitz said had nothing to do with the question that was posed to him. Let me read to you the question, and then let me read to you the part of his answer that has a lot of people enraged, and then I'll come and tell you what I think about it. So here's the question that was posed to Eli Drinkwitz yesterday, and I quote, When you see issues with gambling arising, what's your approach with your team about that issue? Is there an element of surprise, or is that inevitable? And this is the part of the quote that has people kind of ticked off with Eli Drinkwitz. We're giving guys 18, 19, 22 year olds life changing money. People are making more money in NIL than my brother-in-law, who's a pediatrician, 
who saves lives. And we kind of do it cavalier and we think that there is not going to be any side effect. There's not going to be any issues in the quote. Couple of things. First of all, nobody asked him about NIL. The question centered around gambling. Second of all, these coaches and this NIL money is always going to be a topic of discussion. Because when you look at these coaches, they had no problem with these athletes getting paid under the table because most of the coaches were the ones paying the players under the table. And then all of a sudden, when these guys could capitalize off their name, image, and likeness, that's when these coaches started having a problem because they realized that they no longer could wield the kid's scholarship over his head and say, do as I say, or we're going to cut your scholarship. Now these players can look at you and say, shit, I don't need your scholarship. I can go out and sign me an $8 million NIL deal and you can, you know, do whatever you have to do. And another thing, Eli Drinkowitz talks about these kids making more in NIL money than his brother-in-law does as a pediatrician. Well, that's obviously funny for him to say that considering the fact that Eli Drinkowitz just agreed to recently a new contract in which he got a pay raise. And now Eli Drinkwitz is going to be making in the neighborhood of $6 million yearly. So it's funny that you criticize the kids for making more than your brother-in-law, but yet at the same time, you're making more than your brother-in-law too. Hypocritical much, Eli? Because you are. Look. And then the funny thing about this whole thing is that after he started to realize that his comments had caused backlash and caused people to become critical of him, then he took to Twitter to basically say this. First of all, he posted the full exchange of the question and his answer, and then he said this in the caption. Full context of question and answer. I am no way complaining about player compensation. I'm fully supportive. Fully supportive was in all caps. Always have been. Look, we're at a very, very integral point in this NIL discussion. Like I just said, these kids no longer have to worry about these coaches and these scholarships. Because when you look at it, most of these guys are already getting big NIL endorsements when they're in high school. Mickey Williams is the perfect example. Mikey Williams, Mickey Williams, hell, it's the same thing. He's the perfect example of this. Signed that big multi-year deal with Puma. And I'm pretty sure a lot of other young men are going to come along in high school and they're going to be getting the same kind of deals. I saw one guy, he signed a deal with Dairy Queen. Another one signed with a car dealership. Somebody signed one with Raisin Canes, I think, if I remember correctly. So these guys are getting all sorts of money from NIL. They don't have to worry about scholarships anymore. Scholarships at some point or another is going to become a thing of the past because now these guys can look and say, okay, I got my NIL money. Then you can go to any school you want. And then we now know that these schools are going to start opening their pocketbooks up even further to make sure that they can land the guys that they want. Lane Kiffin talked about this, that guys are going to be influenced as to where they play college ball based on who can offer them the most NIL money. And Lane even was one of the first coaches to come out and say that college football is becoming a business. And now there's talks about college football. They should treat their players like employees because that's basically what they are at this point. They're employees. You may as well go ahead and start a union. Start the college football players 
Players Association so that these players can at least have some kind of union that can represent their best interest because that's basically where college football is going. The college football that you and I witnessed 5, 10, 15 years ago is not the college football that's taking place right now. NIL, conference realignment, and the emergence of super conferences have basically turned the sport that we love into a business. Not to say that it wasn't already one to begin with, but now it's at the forefront of taking over and becoming a more semi-NFL style league, if you want to call it that. But if you're Eli Drinkwitz, man, shut up. And you know, you don't really like to say that to another grown man, but just shut up. You're making $6 million and yet you haven't even had one winning season at Mizzou. And you got hired at Mizzou based on what you did in 2019 when you were at Appalachian State, when you went 12 and 1. You went 8 and 1 in conference. And next thing you know, Mizzou brought you down there thinking that you were just going to be able to resurrect their football program. And the only real spotlight that Mizzou has had on them is when they nearly upset at Georgia. What was it, last season? When they almost knocked off Georgia. Other than that, Eli Drinkwitz hasn't done anything noteworthy during his time as Mizzou's head football coach. So take your six mil a year. Stop criticizing these players. And you better hope that at some point in this season, you don't get bought out. Because one thing we're starting to notice now is that these teams and these boosters have no problem paying off these buyouts now. And then when you think about Mizzou, when you think about their athletic director and that athletic department, in 2020, Missouri went five and five. In 2021, they were six and seven. They were three and five in conference play. Had the same record in 2022. Four days after they lost to Kentucky, Eli Drinkwitz got his pay raise. And three days after, Missouri lost to 42, lost by 42 points to Tennessee. Maybe you should have waited on giving Drinkwitz that pay raise. Because he sure as hell hasn't earned it. Now, maybe if you would have stayed at App State a couple of more years, you could have really gotten a great look at what you were potentially going to hire. The same with Billy Napier down at Florida. I'm going to continue to harp on that one because that one still pisses me off. You bring in Billy Napier. You lose out on Jaden Rashada because things didn't go right. And now the quarterbacks that you have on the roster are just, oh, man. Every time I think about Florida's quarterback room, I get a feeling inside of me that just makes me just sick. Now, I will say this. There is somebody out there that I wish would enter the transfer portal if he could and bring his talents to Gainesville. Robbie Ashford, quarterback at Auburn. I'm pretty sure we all know that Peyton Thorne is going to take over as the starting quarterback at Auburn. Because when Hugh Freeze was hired at Auburn, he talked about that they needed to have more depth in the quarterback room. Went out and got Peyton Thorne out the transfer portal from Michigan State. He's now down there in Auburn as the quarterback. And Robbie Ashford has basically had to take a back seat. And Robbie Ashford transferred to Auburn from Oregon. But hey, you know, he's a two-sporter too. He plays baseball and he plays football. Florida has a good baseball program. And I believe that that would be a chance for Billy Napier to develop a quarterback 
to fit his scheme. So if you're Robbie Ashford, if you want to transfer, come on down to Gainesville. We'd love to have you, especially if you can develop your game, hone in your craft. We'll still let you play baseball. But those are just my thoughts on that. But back on point. A lot of coaches have been salty about this, about players being able to get paid based on their name, image, and likeness. Saban was the one that came out and said that it needed to be regulated. But yet nobody has a problem when these coaches get these pay raises. Nobody talks about that needs to be regulated. And yet Eli Drinkowitz had the, felt like he had the audacity to fix his mouth to say that these guys are getting more money than his brother-in-law. Hell, you're getting more money than your brother-in-law. And yet you aren't doing nearly as half of what he's doing. It's not the it's not these players' faults that these businesses are giving them what they feel that they're worth. Hell, maybe if you are a better coach, nobody would have these problems. And yet you're trying to sit up there and call out these young men because they're getting what they feel is rightfully owed to them, and yet you're stealing money from Missouri. Hell, start winning some games. And then maybe you can come out and criticize NIL. Now, if Saban and Dabo and Kirby and those guys, if they want to come out and criticize NIL, I give them a pass because at least they've won. If Ryan Day wants to come out and criticize NIL, he has a right to. James Franklin up at Penn State, if he wants to criticize NIL, he has a right to. But if you're Jimbo Fisher, if you're Eli Drinkwitz, if you're Billy Napier, y'all need to shut up. Y'all ain't done nothing. And especially if you're Jimbo. Jimbo, you had the number one recruiting class in the country last year and did nothing with it. And yet the majority of those guys eventually ended up transferring out of the program. Win first and criticize later. That's the reason why when Saban and Kirby and Jimbo and Dabo rather, that's the reason why when they talk, nobody really has a problem with what they have to say, because at least they win. Eli, focus on winning. Beat somebody for a change. Hell, since you've been at Missouri, you guys haven't even won the bowl game that you've been selected to go to yet. And you have the nerve to come out and talk about these guys are making more than your brother-in-law. Hell, you're making more than your brother-in-law. And yet, and what, you must think you've earned that. (laughs) And Missouri, you should be ashamed of yourself too. Giving this goddamn pay raise for what? Going six and seven in back-to-back years? Three and five in conference play in back-to-back years? And I know damn well you didn't give him that pay raise just because he almost knocked off Georgia. Almost knocking off Georgia and knocking off Georgia are two totally different things. Out of here with that mess. And you hired him based on what he did in 2019 at App State. Just because he won in the Sun Belt Conference doesn't necessarily mean that that can translate over to the SEC. The SEC is a totally different ballpark than the Sun Belt Conference. Don't get me wrong, there are great guys that play in the Sun Belt Conference that have been overlooked by the mainstream conferences. 
talking about 18, 19, 22 year olds, life changing money. People are making more money in NIL than my brother-in-law, who's a pediatrician, who saves lives. And bring him onto your team and make him an assistant coach or something then. Or make him the head head doctor for the team or whatever if you feel like he's that underpaid. And if you feel like these guys are committing highway robbery, so these guys are committing highway robbery because they're doing what exactly? They're finally getting paid what they're owed? And yet you find that problematic. And your clarification only dug you deeper into the hole instead of digging you out of it. Let me move on. Week 10. Week 9, excuse me. My key games for NFL week number 9. Let me start off with the Chicago Bears traveling down to New Orleans to take on the Saints. I've told you how I feel about Justin Fields. I've told you how I feel about this revamped, reshaped, retooled Chicago Bears team traveling down to New Orleans to see the revamped New Orleans Saints. Dennis Allen brought in John Gruden to help develop an offense for Derek Carr. That should be a great game. It's going to be an underlooked game because people aren't really going to be expecting much from it. But trust and believe me, I believe that that could be one of the best games of week number nine. We just talked about them, so we may as well keep the tradition going. The Miami Dolphins travel overseas to take on the Kansas City Chiefs for Tyreek Hill For him, this is a revenge game because he can now show the Kansas City Chiefs what they've missed over the course of the past few years. Because when you think about the Chiefs and how they've had to plug in different receivers to fill the hole that Tyree Hill left when he was traded to the Dolphins, now Tyree Hill can show them, hey, listen, I'm with the Dolphins. I got the quarterback. He's the most accurate quarterback or one of the most accurate quarterbacks in the NFL. We got a great team over here. And arguably, if you want to take this a step further, the Miami Dolphins could potentially prove that they're the better team than the Kansas City Chiefs. I'm just saying, keep that in the back of your mind when they go overseas and face off against each other. I have the Rams traveling up to Green Bay to take on the Packers. Once again, it's all about the rebuild for me. The Rams are in what you would like to call a soft rebuild, and the Green Bay Packers are hoping that Jordan Love can become their future starter at the quarterback position. So it's going to be games like this where we can gauge where Jordan Love is and how he's grown and matured in this Packers offense under Matt LaFleur. I have the Seahawks traveling to Baltimore to take on the Ravens. That's basically a killer flight coming from the Pacific Northwest all the way to Baltimore, Maryland. That's going to be a very taxing flight. The Seattle Seahawks shocked nearly everybody last season by being a playoff team Then you have the Baltimore Ravens, on the other hand. Hopefully, Lamar Jackson can stay healthy during the duration of this season. Both teams have improved, specifically at the wide receiver position. The Seahawks selected Jackson Smith and Jigba from Ohio State, whereas the Ravens brought in Odell Beckham Jr. They drafted Zay Flowers from Boston College to go along with what they already have in that receiver room. So I expect a lot of fireworks. I expect a lot of points in this game. It may come down to who has the ball last. Don't let these games fool you. Just because they don't sound appetizing on paper doesn't necessarily mean that they won't be when they kick off. Next up, I have the Colts traveling down to Carolina to take on the Panthers. 
Anthony Richardson against Bryce Young. That's one of the key reasons why I picked that game. Considering how in flux the NFC South happens to be right now, we may talk about this game potentially for the Carolina Panthers. Who knows? They may be in the driver's seat in this division by the time week nine rolls around. And Anthony Richardson, all reports coming from Indianapolis and their camp right now, they're stating that Anthony Richardson has taken that next step and he's basically doing all the right things in camp, making all the right reads and things of that nature. And when you see Bryce Young at practice, the same can be said about him. So both guys have developed well since being selected in the NFL draft back in April. So that should be an exciting matchup. Hopefully both guys can stay healthy until we see that matchup in week nine. The Giants travel to Las Vegas to take on the Raiders. If you're Darren Waller, this game should be circled on your calendar. Darren Waller, a lot of people felt like if it wasn't for John Gruden taking a chance on Darren Waller, nobody would know who he was. Now Darren Waller has the opportunity to go back to Vegas and show the Raiders what they're missing. And what's so crazy to me, and I even said this on podcast after it happened, one of the craziest things that happened is that the Raiders get rid of Darren Waller only to draft Michael Mayer from Notre Dame in the draft. So you get rid of a tight end just to bring in a tight end. I don't understand that. So if you're Darren Waller, hopefully you go into this game, you get your revenge on the Raiders. Because according to him, the Giants respect and value their players' opinion, unlike the Raiders. That's a little Devontae Adams in there, too. Next up, I have the Cowboys traveling up to Philadelphia to take on the Eagles. This game should be circled on everybody's calendar. If you are a fan of the NFL, that game should be circled on your calendar. Cowboys and Eagles, we already know the historical context of what that game means and what that rivalry has meant over the course of time. But it really feels as though this rivalry has found this footing in recent years, especially now since Jalen Hurts has stepped into his own as the quarterback of the Eagles. And honestly, the jury is still out on what Dak Prescott can do as quarterback. I'll just go ahead and tell it like it is. There is no trying to chase away that fact a lot of people still have doubts about Dak Prescott being a legitimate starter in this league but according to him he's having fun with Mike McCarthy calling the plays so let's see can the Dallas Cowboys have fun when they go up to Philly and face off against that juggernaut that happens to be the Eagles who are already preeminent favorites to represent the NFC in next season's Super Bowl next up I have the Buffalo Bills, and the Cincinnati Bengals. Um, This game is important for a lot of different reasons. If you're DeMar Hamlin, you return to the scene of where you had your cardiac event. If you are the Bills, you feel as though you didn't really have an opportunity to finish that game, and that game could have instantly changed the ramifications of the playoff standings. And if you're Cincinnati, you want to make a statement And you want to add on to what you did in the playoffs because remember, Cincinnati went into Buffalo for that playoff game where it was snowing and the wind was blowing and they beat Buffalo at their own game. And Joe Burrow and company had a great day at the office, whereas Buffalo and Josh Allen struggled. So if you're Josh Allen in the Bills, you're hoping that this time around you can go into Cincinnati and steal a game in their own building. And finally, I have the Chargers traveling up to East Rutherford to take on the Jets. 
Justin Herbert against Aaron Rodgers doesn't get any better than that. The coaching matchup is interesting too. You have two defensive-minded head coaches that will be battling it out against each other. Brandon Staley for the Chargers, Robert Sala for the Jets. That game has the potential to shoot off some fireworks on both sides of the ball, offensively and defensively. So if you're looking for some excitement in week nine, I just gave you a plethora of opportunities and a plethora of games that you can watch for in week number nine that can get your blood going when it pertains to the National Football League. All right, let me get into my unpopular opinion before I get into the final verdict for today. As I shuffle my papers around. Unpopular opinion for today. Players shouldn't need pep talks from coaches before critical games. That's the unpopular opinion. Let me break this down. So after the Celtics lost game seven to the Heat, there were a lot of people who were very critical of Joe Mazzola's pregame speech. And one of the things that I've always felt when it pertains to a critical game is that if you are a player and you cannot recognize the looming thing that's in front of you, a.k.a. a game seven, then why are you there? For an example, if you are a team and you're about to get ready and play in the Super Bowl, or if you're about to get ready and play in a game seven of an NBA final, a Stanley Cup final, or a World Series, if you cannot understand the magnitude of that moment, you should not be in that moment. You shouldn't need a head coach or a team captain to step up in front of you, hit you in the chest and tell you, are you ready? You ready? You shouldn't need that. Because if you don't understand what you're about to get and walk into, then we don't need you. And you're trying to tell me what? That these guys need someone to yell at them, get in their face, cuss at them, and tell them that, man, you know why we're here. This our time. No. You should already understand what we're here for. And people sitting around criticizing Joe Mazzola all because he doesn't know how to give a pregame speech. He shouldn't have had to have to give one is the key. You're trying to tell me that those guys who had just been in a previous spot earlier in the semifinal round against the Sixers in a game seven, you're trying to tell me that whatever Joe Mazzola did in the Philly series, it worked. And all of a sudden in the Heat series, his pregame speech becomes problematic. You don't need a pregame speech to walk into that. If anything, your blood and your heart should be racing when you're driving to the arena. When you're driving to the stadium, if you want to put it into NFL terms. And yet people want to criticize him. Stop. That's my unpopular opinion. In that critical spot, players should not need a pep talk. Because you should understand the climactic moment that you're about to walk into. And if you don't, don't come. Just think about it. If you know that you're about to get in and play for a game seven and your season is on the line, the majority of people wouldn't even be able to sleep the night before. You'd be up pacing the floor of your house all night long because you're waiting for the clock to finally hit so that you can leave your house, drive to the arena, and get ready to do warm-up so you can go out there and play for Game 7 to defend your home court in the case of the Boston Celtics. Even if you're playing a Game 7 on the road, you're probably pacing the floor of your hotel room. You're probably running in the hallway and people probably think you're crazy. You're not crazy. You just can't sleep because you realize what that game seven, what it means for you and your team. And if you need somebody to perk you up or pep you up to go out there and do your job, then you shouldn't be there. Because it's unnecessary to me. 
that you need somebody to get you riled up for that type of a moment. Game seven alone, just hearing those, just hearing that phrase alone should be enough to get you pumped up for what you're about to get ready and take on. And it doesn't work that way for some people. Some people need the additional motivation. But if game seven is not motivation enough for you, then you're not in the right thing. You're not in the right career profession. And by the way, I wanted to add this too. When I was talking about game seven earlier, I failed to mention that Jimmy Butler won Eastern Conference final MVP, but a case and an argument could have been made for Caleb Martin to have won it too. Now, I could have seen it to where both of those guys would have walked away with co-MVP because Caleb Martin did his thing. And I just wanted to add that. But once again, and finally, my unpopular opinion is that in that critical spot, players should not need a pep talk for a game seven or for a Super Bowl. You should understand how big of a moment that is. And if you don't, you're in the wrong place, buddy. It is time for the final verdict today before I get you out of here on a Wednesday. Before I do that, if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to rate the podcast. If you want to leave a review, feel free to do so. If you want to hit me up, if you have anything you would like to say, if you have something that you want to get on air, email will always be in the show notes. We're still contemplating whether or not to bring social media into this. Preferably, I try to stay away from social media considering the fact of the world that we live in now. But if social media gets you guys talking, we will clearly go down that route. And finally, if you want other people to join sports coordination or if you want other people to hear the great things that we talk about every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, share the pod, family and friends. I'm pretty sure they'll get a great listen out of it. All right, final verdict time. So the Celtics in game seven, We talked about how poorly they shot the three ball. And for the entirety of the series, they were 30%. A lot of people want to blame the Celtics for their shot selection. A lot of people wanted to talk about Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, and those guys, Al Horford, Grant Williams, Marcus Smart. Everybody always wanted to talk about those guys taking ill-advised threes. Basically, the climate that we live in now, When you talk about the NBA, that climate where everybody now wants to become a three-point shooter has to be accredited to what the Golden State Warriors were able to do. When Steph Curry came into his own as a shooter and Klay Thompson came into his own as a shooter, what was their forte as a team? Nearly anybody who played for the Golden State Warriors had to become a three-point specialist because Steph and Klay are three-point specialists. And now the media has hyped up, or hyped up rather, the Golden State Warriors as being one of the best three-point shooting teams of all time. Now everybody that comes into the NBA wants to try their hand at shooting the three ball. You even have centers like Nikola Jokic trying to shoot the three ball. You even have guys who had poor three-point shooting percentages in college coming into the NBA wanting to shoot the three ball. And a lot of that could be accredited to the Golden State Warriors and their success shooting the three ball and to the media pumping that up the sports media had a field day talking about how great of a shooter Steph Curry and Klay Thompson happened to be and then when you have other guys trying to imitate that the media has a problem with it so when you want to look for a scapegoat when you talk about the Celtics and the way that they shoot the three ball look no further 
than the Golden State Warriors and the media. Because if it wasn't for them, we wouldn't be having this continued discussion today about why so many teams fall victim to the three ball every single year. And that's going to conclude today's episode of Sports Corp. Once again, thank you so much for listening. As always, we will be right back here again on Friday with another brand new episode. But until then, have a great rest of your Wednesday. Have an amazing Thursday. Stay safe, take care, and God bless.